how many of you have ever taken an Uber or a Lyft before? Quite a few of you. Or maybe um, a hotel shuttle, right? Several years ago when our connecting flight in Denver was canceled, Southwest, they assured us that they would take care of all of our needs. Flight was canceled. They owned it. They were going to take care of all of our needs. They said, we're not only going to put you up in a hotel, Aaron, you and your your family, all six of you, but we're also going to provide the transportation to get you from the airport to the hotel. Now, it was very late at night when the flight was canceled, and as you can imagine, we were all very tired, and we just wanted to get to the hotel sooner rather than later. And keep in mind, there's six of us, and as Basil had mentioned, we do not travel lightly, so there's six of us with all our, our backpacks and stuff like that. So we waited just outside where the baggage claim was. We waited patiently for our ride because Southwest had assured us that they were going to get us to where we needed to go. Well, to our surprise, instead of a hotel shuttle, we were transported by an Uber XL. Now, I don't remember how or why it happened, but we were glad it did. <laughs> And interestingly enough, the, the Uber pulled up, and this was the first time my family had ever, ever been in an Uber before. We'd never done it before. In fact, they, it, it was felt just a little bit weird. I don't know if you, you can remember this, but, you know, going into a stranger's car, you know, a stranger pulls up, opens the door, and you go in. My kids are like, are we supposed to be doing this? Is this right, you know? Needless to say, it was a very, very quiet car ride uh, to the hotel. But it was a nice car, right? We... We were told by Southwest, we're going to get you to the hotel, but we didn't know how they were going to do it. And we were delighted when it was a very nice Uber XL. Well, Faith, the Bible teaches that salvation is from the Lord. It is His work from start to finish. Indeed, the Bible promises that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That is, Christian, that God will bring all Christians, all who belong to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, He will bring them safely home to experience final salvation. As we study the Bible, we see that salvation is talked about you have been saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. And God is in control of all of it. Salvation is from the Lord from start to finish. But here's the million-dollar question. God promises that he will bring all Christians safely home, that he will bring all of us to experience final salvation. But here's the million-dollar question. How will God get us there? That is, what means does the Lord use to fulfill his promise so that believers will experience final salvation. Think of it like this. Southwest promised to get us to the hotel. And what means did they use for us to get there? An Uber. God has promised to bring Christians safely home. So what means does the Lord use to get us there? How does God keep us from falling away from the faith so that we'll make it and to experience final salvation? 
Well, that's the very question our passage answers this morning. And it's a, it's a question all Christians must know the answer to very well. So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. That's page 103 in that paperback Bible that we provide out there in the lobby. This morning, we once again are going to be looking at Hebrews 5. However, this time we're going to keep reading down to chapter 6, verse 12. For this section, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 12, it's actually one complete unit of thought. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I begin chapter 5, verse 11. And I pray that as God's word is read, his spirit will work in our lives to bring about the intended effect that this text wants to have in our hearts. So the author had been talking about the priesthood of Christ, how we have a great high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin now in verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, about this, referring to the priesthood of Christ, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, or that word more literally, sluggish. You've become sluggish of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. And what are the mature? For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And now here is the main exhortation, the main point of this entire unit. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Right? He, he's discerned in the readers there's spiritual infancy in you. This is a problem. It's preventing you from digesting and eating the meat of God's word. So he says, let's move on from childhood, from childish ways. Let's move on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction of, about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. It says this in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. So let's leave these elementary things behind. Let's move on to maturity. And this we'll do if God permits. And so now he's giving another reason to further his argument of why we ought to move on towards maturity. He's going to say why we ought not be spiritual infants. To be baby Christians, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age have come and then have fallen away. To restore them again to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. 
and holding him up to contempt. He's saying those who have experienced salvation, those who know the Lord, if they reject him, if they turn away, if they fall away, there is no hope. And then he gives an analogy to help us understand verse 7. For the land, this is referring to the person. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. There's a warning here. Don't fall away. Don't turn away from the Lord. The end is bad. You need to move on to maturity. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't have a hardened of heart. Look what happens if you do. Now notice what the author of Hebrews thinks about the people he just told us to. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. So notice the author seems to think they're going to hear this warning and it's going to do something for them. Feel sure of better things. He's confident that they will obtain salvation, things that belong to salvation. Verse 10, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish or dull of hearing. Right? Think of how this section started. Should not be sluggish or dull of hearing, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. They, they reached the destination. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Do any of you happen to live in an area that has raccoons? Yeah. They can actually be somewhat pesky, can't they? Last year, a curious raccoon tampered with some electric equipment in Toronto, Canada. And you know what happened? The entire downtown area experienced a power outage for several hours at night. So you know what that meant? It meant over 7,000 people were immediately plunged into darkness. And according to the city's fire department, this caused serious problems. And you know what the greatest problem was? In downtown Toronto, at night, no power, no electricity. You know what the greatest problem was? People stuck in elevators. And think about this. It's one thing to get stuck in traffic. But imagine being trapped in an elevator, in the dark, with strangers for hours. 
How terrible would that be? Now, this is one of the many reasons why I choose to take the stairs most times. <laughs> It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? But please hear me. Yet as terrible as that might be, the author of Hebrews identifies an even greater place to be trapped. And you know where that is? It's in spiritual immaturity. As you no doubt noticed, our passage this morning contains some of the hardest, if not the hardest verses in the Bible to properly understand. It is not an exaggeration to say that, nor to say that much ink has been spilled to really understand what Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, actually means. It's really, really hard. Yet before we look carefully at these verses, it will serve us well to take a moment to see where this passage fits within the author's overall argument. What, what you need to understand is that Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12, as I mentioned, forms one cohesive unit. Notice the section begins with the author's concern about the original reader's dull hearing or sluggish hearing. And then it concludes with the author desiring them not to be sluggish or dull in hearing. But instead we have an earnestness in hearing and obeying God's word. So this section begins and ends with the importance of hearing God's word. Indeed, as verse 12 makes clear in chapter 6, the author's great desire is that the original readers, and by extension us, would exercise faith and inherit the promises, that we would reach final salvation. So notice what the author writes smack dab in the middle in chapter 6, verse 1. As we've stated, this is the main exhortation of this entire section, and that is to move towards Christian maturity. This is the author's great burden in this section. He wants us to grow up. He doesn't want us to be spiritual infants. And why is that? Well, because as chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 makes clear, remaining in a state of dull hearing Remaining in a state of having a hardened heart is dangerous. Like, really, really dangerous. So for the past two weeks, we've been examining the marks of Christian maturity based on the author's argument in this text. And you'll recall that Christian maturity, we identified four. It's heart-oriented. It's measured by righteousness. It's built on Christ, and as we looked at last week in verse 3, it's dependent on God's intervention. The author not only calls us to Christian maturity, but if we look carefully at his argument, he shows us what it is we're to be striving for. Yet these aren't the only marks of Christian maturity. I want to suggest that based on the author's language, he wants us to understand some additional marks of Christian maturity. And I'm going to suggest here is where this difficult passage comes into play. So faith, please notice that fifthly, Christian maturity is also responsive to God's warnings. The mature Christian hears the warnings of Scripture and responds accordingly. 
This is what the author wants. Indeed, this is what the author sees in these believers. Because notice what we read here again. Look again at verses 4 through 9. He writes, For it is impossible in the case who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. They've had the hard heart. They were dull of hearing. They were like Israel in the rebellion. Those who... Re- who have tasted and seen and go away, what does he say? It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls in it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. And then he says this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He gives them a warning and he believes the warning will help them And is the means so that they will experience final salvation. Several days ago, the Epic Times ran this story. Maybe you saw it. Woman emerges from coma after hearing her mom's joke. You happen to see this, anyone? On September 25th, 2017, Jennifer Flelowen got into a terrible car accident, and then she immediately fell into a coma. However, after the end of last year, at the end of last year, almost five years after the accident, her mom was caring for her, sitting by her bed, and her mom just decided to tell her daughter, who was in a coma, a joke. And to everyone's amazement, she laughed. The doctors are calling it a medical miracle. Here's a picture of her, her parents. Her mom's joke awoke her from her slumber. Well, faith, the warnings in Scripture are intended to have the same effect on the elect. That is, they are intended to awaken believers from spiritual sluggishness so that we might be alert and spiritually alive. Now, this passage raises many questions, does it not? And to be sure, we'll get to them in a minute. But what I first want to do is I want to give you the punchline. As I mentioned at the start of the sermon, salvation is from the Lord from start to finish. He promises to bring us home to final salvation. Aren't we thankful for that? Amen? The question is, what means does God use to bring his purposes to pass? And the answer is, warnings. 
Like a dog with a dog whistle, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and obey. Don't go there. Don't do that. Stop. And hear me very carefully. The elect, those chosen by God, they will always hear and persevere. To properly interpret this passage, what we need to do is we need to ask the text several questions. First, let's consider who is actually being described here in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Now, some argue that those described in this passage are almost Christians. That is, they give the appearance of being a Christian, but they're not truly saved. And to be sure, the Bible does have a category for such a person. Think of Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, right? The sower and the soil. Remember that? In that passage, Jesus teaches that there's four types of responses people have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two of those responses being that there's those who initially have a positive response to Jesus, but yet when the tribulations or difficulties or the cares of the world come upon them, they fall away. They abandon Christ. These people were never genuine Christians to begin with. As John writes in 1 John 2.19, they left us because they were not one of us. They, they hear, they have an initial positive response to Jesus, but to, to use Jesus' analogy of the, of the soil, it, it never takes root. And they fall away. They were never Christians to begin with. So the Bible does have a category for a person who gives the appearance of being a Christian, but is not genuinely saved. And I think it's worthwhile, I should probably ask, is that true of you? Have you just been giving the appearance of a Christian? But when it comes to engaging in the things of the world and loving the world more than Christ, you gladly set Jesus aside to live how you want to live. Friend, be warned. So, so there is this category of those that give the appearance of being a Christian, but they are not. However, that's not what we find here in Hebrews 6. Now, could the church to which this letter was written have such people in the congregation like Jesus mentions in Matthew 13? That is, were there people who gave the appearance of being a Christian but weren't truly, weren't truly saved? They weren't trusting completely in the person work of Christ for their salvation? Yes. In fact, most likely. But that's not the important question we need to answer when studying this text. No, the question that must be resolved is whether the author describes the recipients as believers or unbelievers. And I want to suggest that he clearly describes them as Christians. Consider first that they were, notice there in verse 4, they were once enlightened. The word once suggests a decisive event, namely conversion. And we know this is the case because the word enlightened is used later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 32, to describe the reader's conversion. Please hear me. They were not almost enlightened, but they were enlightened, meaning they were converted. 
Second, the readers tasted the heavenly gift. As several commentators have pointed out, this phrase most naturally means they experienced the salvation that comes from heaven above. But then, friend, third and, and most compelling reason why those described here are in fact Christians is the phrase, they shared in the Holy Spirit. And why do I say that's the most compelling reason why those described here are Christians? Because the New Testament goes out of its way to make it clear that the mark that one is in fact a Christian is that they have the Holy Spirit. Think of Galatians 3, 1 through 5, where Paul instructs the readers that, listen, you are true believers because you've received the Holy Spirit when you believed. Or in Romans 8, 9, Paul teaches that those who don't have the Holy Spirit don't belong to God, whereas those who have the Spirit are members of the people of God. So the point here I want to suggest is simple. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the clearest indication in the New Testament that one is a Christian. In fact, it's hard to imagine a clearer way of saying that the readers are believers than saying this, that they shared in the Holy Spirit. But if that weren't enough, notice we read in verse 5, the author describes the readers as having tasted two things. They tasted God's good word. The idea is that they fully ingested God's word by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then second, they tasted the powers of the age to come. This signifies they've experienced the Old Testament promises becoming a reality in Christ Jesus. So again, and I just want to say this. This is arguably the hardest passage in the entire Bible to study and to understand properly. But I want to suggest with humility that the person being described in Hebrews 6, 4 through 9 as a believer. This is to whom the warning is given. And what is the warning? We'll look at verse 6. It's falling away. It's apostasy. Now, please note, this is important, the author doesn't assume they have fallen away. These are not declarations about what has happened. They're warnings. Namely, if you continue to be dull of hearing, if you continue to have a hardened heart, you will be damned. There's no hope for you. Why? Because notice the reason given there. You're holding Jesus in contempt. That means you're treating him as worthless. You're, you're like when he was crucified, you're agreeing with the crucifiers. And notice, to drive this point home, the author gives an illustration of the consequences of abandoning Jesus. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. This is the way it should be, right? Salvation comes, fruit is produced. But if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The purpose of the illustration is clear. If the reader, who is the land in this analogy, yields weeds in their life after receiving God's blessing, then they are worthless. 
Indeed, the author says the land will be burned, which refers to the person. Now, some, and again, I want to be really gracious and charitable here. This is, it is a hard passage to put together, but some understand this to refer to rewards. But I want to suggest such a reading fails to understand the analogy. For notice, the author describes destruction of the land, not its fruit. The land refers to the person in illustration. They're the one who's going to get burned up. So those being described, I want to suggest, are Christians. And they're being warned. And what are they being warned around? Don't turn away from Jesus. Don't stop believing in him. Don't let your heart be hardened due to sin. Christian, keep going to Jesus. Move on towards maturity. Don't fall away. And why is the author warning them? I want to suggest because the warnings are the means that God uses to bring his own safely to final salvation. As I've stated, salvation is from the Lord. This means, please hear me, Christians, those who belong to God through faith in Jesus, they cannot lose their salvation. They will persevere till the end. So how does God get them to persevere? Through texts just like these, through warnings. The warnings are always effectual in the lives of the chosen. In other words, those who belong to God will heed God's warning and not fall away. And I want to suggest this is definitely the perspective of the author because notice what he says next in verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, what way? Christian, if you turn away from Jesus, it's bad news. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. So do you see Consider what the author writes in this verse. The author is confident that the elect of God will be responsive to God's warning and experience final salvation. They'll say, oh man, Israel had a hard heart. They were dull of hearing. I'm not going to do that. And here I want to suggest is the other mark of Christian maturity. Christian maturity is responsive to God's warnings. Like the dog call, you, you hear not a whistle, but you hear the shepherd's voice. So here's the most important question this morning, and that is this. Christian, are you or have you become dull of hearing? Has your heart become hardened due to unconfessed and habitual sin in your life? You know how you become dull of hearing and hard-hearted? You just, you just give in to sin little bit by 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 little bit. You fail to give effort in being skilled in righteousness. And friend, is that true of you? If so, don't take it lightly. Confess your sin and repent. Repent. 
boldly approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and forgiveness for your sin, as well as grace to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Now, some of you might be wondering and might even object by saying, okay, Aaron, I, I hear you saying, if, if a person is a Christian, if, as we were looking at in, in Ephesians, if they're chosen by God, as Jesus teaches in the Gospels, if, if they're the elect, that they cannot lose their salvation. Okay, I understand that, Aaron. And are you saying that, that the, they can't lose their salvation and God's going to use the warnings to help them persevere and not fall away? Well, Aaron, if, if, they, if they can't lose their salvation anyway, then, then aren't the, the warnings meaningless? Aren't they besides the point if a true believer can't apostatize? Because to be sure, the Bible repeatedly assures that Christians cannot lose their salvation. So, so why are these even needed? Well, what I want to suggest is that that objection does not take into account that God is a God of both means and ends. And this is what I've been arguing this morning. It is not correct, biblically speaking, to say that the means are pointless if the end will be secured. There are many examples in Scripture where means are used when the end is certain. For example, let's look in the Old Testament. Consider Daniel and how Daniel prayed fervently that God would fulfill the promise God had made from the prophet Jeremiah that Israel would return from Babylon after 70 years. You can read this in Daniel 9. You'll recall that the Lord promised that Israel would return from exile. Therefore, one might think Daniel's prayer then is superfluous. Why pray for this, Daniel? God, the, the means is, the end is secure. Daniel prayed because Daniel believed his prayer was one of the means by which the promises would be secured. Or consider what we read in Acts 27. I've mentioned this to you before. In the midst of a raging storm at sea, Paul received the promise that every single person on board, all 276 of them, would live. No one's going to die. He received that promise from the Lord. But what does Paul do? Shortly after he receives that promise, he warns the centurion and the soldiers that they would not survive if they allowed the sailors to escape on a smaller boat. Why? Well, let me ask you, what was the purpose of Paul warning them since God had already promised that all the lives on the ship would be saved? I want to suggest that Paul clearly believed that the warning was one of the means by which the promise would come to pass. And then let's consider an example from the Gospels with Jesus, what we read in Mark 13. In that passage, Jesus teaches that it's impossible for the elect to believe false messiahs and prophets. You can read it in Mark 13, 20 and 22. Jesus says, it's impossible for those that God has brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, those that are his own, that they will be deceived by false prophets and false messiahs. But yet in the very same chapter, 
Jesus warns his disciples in the strongest terms possible to be on guard and constantly alert. Why? Why should believers stay alert if they can't be deceived? Again, the warning is one of the means through which the promises of God are secured. Faith, I, I know we've done a lot of heavy lifting and we've, we've sought to make as best sense as we could of this very difficult text. But my prayer is that this text would have its intended effect, and that is, you who belong to Jesus, you belong to God through faith in Jesus, hear the warning and take it seriously. Do not treat the spiritual condition of your heart lightly. This passage is not meant for you just to blow it off. Say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a-okay. Yes, you are a-okay because God is your Father. And as and your Father tells you, persevere, fight, work hard to fight sin and to keep trusting in Jesus. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the invitation comes to you to own your sin, to repent of it, and to trust that Jesus and his work alone is enough to save you. And to have today be the first day of a lifelong journey of trusting in the promises of God and delighting in him. May today be the day of salvation for you. And faith, may this text stir in us a greater devotion and fervency to obey God's word. May it produce in us great faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.